To introduce the guests, on my far right is John Batsek, who's producer and executive producer and managing director of Passion Pictures. On his left is Andrew Ruman, who is an executive producer and also a director. He's the CEO and the founder of Passion Pictures. To my immediate right is Nicole Stott, who is a producer and head of development. And to her right is George Trignall, who is a producer and head of production. Um, let's, I gave a very, very brief introduction to Passion Pictures, and then we, we saw that showreel, um, examples of your work. Perhaps you could talk about what you see Passion Pictures as being. Um, yes, hello, everybody. Um, thanks so much for coming um, to this beautiful cinema. Um, what do I see Passion as being? I, I think it's kind of it's achieved a sort of an ideal already so if i was just looking at that john and i sorry john and i were both saying uh, this is on isn't it yeah um that we're sort of almost moved looking at all that stuff it's kind of quite hard to believe we actually produced it all um and it is a it is i think what we've created is a is a mini studio which is what i always wanted it's a it's a mini independent studio and um, here we're focusing on the documentaries, but we actually started in, in animation. We still have a very big and successful animation uh, studio. Um, and uh, what I love about that is that we, it, we're very diverse. You know, we have the kind of films you've seen here. We also have um, a lot of animators doing things so different from anything you're seeing here. We have a wildlife department now, which is very successful too. And... That for me was always something we were we were aiming for is uh, is is to be um, a kind of group under one roof, uh, telling good stories. And just in in the sort of landscape of of documentary filmmaking, I mentioned at the start that it we where you we've been used to seeing documentaries on the big screen for the last fifteen years, and I think some people sort of believe that that all began. Uh, with Bowling for Columbine, but we can look at Aaron Morris, we can look at the Maisels, we can see this long history. But documentary films never, until the 2000s, they didn't seem to be that prominent in cinemas where they are now. Um, I'm just curious about how you perceive the audience and how you perceive the role of documentary within the cinematic landscape. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> um, I feel like I feel like uh there was something of a shift that took place around the en- end of the 90s 2000 when when a series of of what became known as cinema documentaries feature documentaries was made one day in September being one of them when we were kings being another of them um <clears throat> excuse me and um I think suddenly documentaries I I'm sure a documentary histori- historian could correct me and I'm sh- I'm sure there are examples of films made in that style that came before but my recollection of it was that was a moment where where filmmakers were able to deliver documentary as a in a way that felt like a real piece of cinema like with real cinematic vision and uh and i think the 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 audience experience of those films was so gratifying that it sort of it it was sort of the catalyst for 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 a movement to start and gain momentum as and as it has done from that moment on um, I'm definitely conscious of remembering the one day in September moment and then remembering the growing appetite that came off the back of that film that has enabled us to spend the last 20 years, the next 20 years, making more and more and more of them. And I, I, I feel like there's a, I mean, I, I suppose I feel like there's a sort of, 
there's a gratifying experience one has when you're watching the truth being told to you. And if it can be told in the way that we managed to with One Day in September and so many other people have done with their own films in a, in a sort of compelling, dramatic and cinematic way, it becomes a very gratifying experience for, for a cinema audience. I happen to think, and I'm probably wrong about this, currently as, as, as movies, as narrative movies become less gratifying for audiences, I think the appetite for truthful documentaries and stories told, rooted in truth, told the way we're able to tell them, has become more gratifying, which is why I think now... You know, it's it's it could it's the best time that's ever been, and over the past few years, it's got stronger and stronger. I do want to just quickly point out. I always do this. I'm always at pains to say we were an in, we produced a lot of those films. We exec produced and co-produced some of them, so we were an integral part of making them all. But there are also plenty of other people who worked alongside us that made films like Restrepo and The Imposter and Searching for Sugar Man. And although we love to take credit, we also love to share credit with all those people without whom we would never have known about those films. With that in mind, you, you do work within a larger landscape of film, but Passion Pictures um, is known, or it strikes me, and I've, I've always thought Passion Pictures, the films that you make, sort of take chances. You're not willing to sort of work within one tiny area. And it, it annoys me when people refer to documentaries as genre. They don't refer to fiction film as a genre. And there's so many different areas of documentary, but you seem to jump around genres. Um, but do you yourselves sort of feel you have a kind of USP, this is the Passion Pictures film, or is that something you kind of rail against? Well, I suppose there was a period where I think we were seen for making retrospective, archive-heavy, funky music-heavy films, and uh, One Day in September being the first of those, but then we, made, we did make a succession of those, and I'd still be very happy to make those, but we've broadened out in a, in a significant way, and, and I think... Um, Whenever a film comes along, almost almost now the first thought in my head and in our heads is, okay, so what can we do with this one that is going to be progressive and innovative and original and new? Not just for the sake of it, obviously, but that's in keeping with whatever the subject matter is. Um, and so... So I don't think we do have a, you know, we don't, we don't have a go-to film anymore. I think we try to be as broad as we can and whilst always being as creative as possible whilst at the same time being appropriate with that creativity. Yeah, I, I mean, I obviously I agree with all of that. But uh, uh, I think also, I'm glad you say it's, you know, we, we, we don't talk about fiction film as a genre, but we do about documentary. For us, I think what we realized, and it's easy to just trip out the word story, that we are totally story driven. And that means it doesn't actually matter what kind of genre it might fit. We will look at a story and go, well, what is the best way to tell that? And actually, if it's better told in fiction, we'll tell it in fiction. If it's better told in, uh, as a documentary, we'll, we will have that discussion. And the story for us, I think more and more we can identify, will be what I think storytelling should be about, is can we connect with this story? Are we going to be able to connect? Are we going to be able to connect with the characters? Are we going to be able to empathize? Um, and we will often talk about, you know, that things will come through. And I think, we've got, I think we've got some teasers to show later, haven't we? We will get teasers coming through, um, which uh, for those of you that don't know, a teaser is like a little trailer. Um, and it will be a no-brainer because you will connect just in two minutes. You'll go, okay, completely connected with the story. I see where this is going. And that will dictate what we're, what we're doing. It will be about story and character um, and connection. 
But 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 why don't Nicole? Why don't you tell the story of how we made Mar- why we made Marlon the way we made Marlon? Because that's a case in point where a subject she, arrives. Before you do, George, you were just about to say. I think the other thing is is that it is it is as you say, all our films are at the core just a great story. But it's also is it a story that is bigger than, for instance, a TV one hour? And I think that is what. That is our USP, really. That actually we see, or greater than the sum of its parts lines. Yeah. <laughs> I'll leave yeah. that to the editorial. Eloquent people around me, but it is it is taking a great story and seeing it as bigger than TV. Yeah, although we don't ever refer to TV in a pejorative sense, because there's great documentary yeah. on TV increasingly and on the small screen. Um, but yes, our our aim <coughs> is always for big screen cinematic documentary um and with marlon that was we were had already worked with stephen riley twice um and we knew that we could do something really really exciting with the huge wealth of archive we had access to through the estate um and it was it was a leap of faith with stephen because we knew that we had to um encourage him to do kind of push the form and push push himself a bit creatively and he is a genius i mean he's super smart he he basically devoured every book there is on marlon so he knew this man inside out and then when we realized how much audio uh material was available he did suddenly say to john one day i'm going to tell this story entirely in marlon's voice and george and i laugh because there was one screening we went to in the edit where stephen had been kind of sitting alone for weeks and we literally watched a black screen and listened to Marlon's voice and it was compelling but it wasn't quite there and we had to and you know John should take credit for this we had to really push him to go down that road and you know at the time I kept laughingly referring it to it as his breakout movie and I, I think it is because it takes the form to another level. And just to add to that, I think uh, the point I was making also is that when Brando came along, I, I definitely had a conscious thought, which is, if we're going to do this, we, we need to be able to do something that no one else would do, but also something that's sort of unexpected, but also makes it worth telling Marlon Brando's story, because I'm sure it's been told a number of times. And so the kickoff point, one of our kickoff points was, with the greatest of respect, we're not going to interview Sean Penn and Johnny Depp and Jack Nicholson and all those guys, because we know what they'll there's only so much they'll tell us and that film is not the film that we had in our minds and those films had been made and those films have been made so 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 the combination of that and suddenly being told by the way guys there's 300 hours of brando recording his own thoughts into dictaphones set our minds running in that okay so how can we go about this and that's when steven started listening to the audio and 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 said okay i'm going to do this entirely in in marlon's voice and so that wasn't a sort of post-senna decision it was creatively what have we got to play with here what's on offer here because we could have gone and interviewed sean penn and all those guys i'm sure they would have done it but we wouldn't have been able to make a film that would be what we're trying to do which is and i i have to say i think it has basically been entirely successful because anyone who's seen it is sort of shocked and amazed at the way the film is able and the way he presents we're able to present marlon within that film and how it has been done and actually that the only talking head in the film is Marlon's yeah. own head. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was a whole other level of pushing the form and doing something very kind of daring, which was also a fantastic opportunity to work with our animation studio at Passion because 
um, it was a massive challenge, and they rose to it and did a beautiful job. I mean, some of the stuff we weren't able to use is just stunning, and it's stunning part of the film. It's that that is Marlon Brando's digital head. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen the film, there's a, the, yeah, he, he digitised his head. Could, do you want to ask a question? Can I just yeah, follow no, up I've, on I've, that? I've, in a way, just, stay, just staying with uh, Marlon, I, I was quite fascinated because there's that Albert Maisel short uh, film that he made in the 1960s, which is just Mar- um, Marlon on a pressed junket. And it's, it's complete bullshit for about 25 minutes. He's wonderful. He's incredibly charming. He seduces every single person who interviews him, but you find out nothing about him. And I think if you'd had his face on screen, you'd have been drawn in by this magnetic physicality that he has. Removing that... And you're left with the, the just the voice. There's something that really pulls you in, and the honesty. Then, but it's it's a trend that you've continued over from the Muhammad Ali documentary and going back even further than that, Black Sun. And it's it's just interesting. I guess it comes back to this idea of documentary that you seem not to be constrained by the word documentary. It seems to be what's the subject, how best suit that subject, and do whatever you need, and don't be kind of boxed in. I, I think <clears throat> I think that's a good point, which I hadn't actually thought of before. And I think as you're talking, <clears throat> I'm thinking how um, quite autorial these films are. You know, they are very much the directors are, are giving it very much their own voice, and we give them a lot of license and, and encouragement to do that. So Stephen Riley, that is a very poetic piece. That is very much Stephen Riley. You know, you very much sense that. I think the other point that that comes to mind also when you talk about genre without getting too academic about it is there is genre within what what was interesting about some of the films that we made and if you look at those early documentaries one day in september is a thriller in terms of genre it is built as a thriller man on wire is constructed as a heist movie you know these are these are fitting we didn't make it we didn't, we didn't make it <laughs> no i'm talking we about the way i wish yeah we're, we're always accused of sort of trying to appropriate this film we didn't make it i was um, really impressed at the subconscious level yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had to get it in in there um no but just talking about the documentary form in general you know these uh, they do fit a certain genre there but um but yeah no, and i just add to what you said that the only thing that that it doesn't limit us the only you know we we, we aren't limited by the word documentary but we what our films have to be is truthful they have to be the truth they have to be uh, you know so 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 in that respect as much as the word documentary encompasses that we can't be messing with the truth of the story that we're trying to tell so that's i guess the only limitation that we set for ourselves although obviously all documentaries construct yeah. there is nothing as extraordinary as the truth so it's yeah and I, I always look back at One Day in September, actually, I think it's a very interesting model when you think about what the director in particular had to face, because, uh, you know, Kevin MacDonald directed that film, and you are making a film about an event um, where, you know, if you think about it, if you were making a movie about One Day in September, you would cast big, and you would cast the Israeli athletes, you know, um, you would cast the terrorists, um, and you'd think you'd have everything to play with as a scriptwriter about how to tell that story, but when you know it was John, John had come up with the idea, and when Kevin's sitting there, he has to figure out how to tell that story. None of the athletes are alive; they all died. Uh, one of the terrorists supposedly is alive. We have no idea where Mossad couldn't find him. How do you tell a story when all your protagonists are not there, and you have no idea if there's any archive? You know, you suspect there's some. That is that's film, you know. That is documentary filmmaking. It's okay. Make a story out of that. 
you know, oh, maybe we should make a movie because we don't have any of that. Do Actually, it was Archive that was the turning point that made, I think, me, maybe all of us at the time think this film has to be made because there was a lot of Olympic Archive, of course, and there's that extraordinary moment when Jim McKay turns to camera and tells the audience the terrible truth of what has happened, having... I forget now how many hours earlier, like 90 minutes earlier, delivered the truth that everyone had been saved because that was the original story. And just watching that piece of archive in isolation alone, literally the shiver just shot up my spine and I just thought, this is an extraordinary story. Just with this piece of footage alone, somehow we've got to be able to tell the story because it's incredibly dramatic. It's interesting, when I, I first saw Spielberg's Munich, I wonder how he would have filmed uh, the scenes... Uh, in the Olympic um, camp had that film not been made because to, to watch the opening the way that he integrates the footage outside um, of the room with the footage he shot inside the room uh, but it's too packed to I, I think say it, it tells itself because of the amount of footage you have for that film but just looking at the idea of form and your roles in developing stories say take a look at The Imposter which is a film that actually questions the very idea of truth um, you say you give a lot of leeway to your directors, but I'm, I'm just curious about the early discussions you have and sort of when it's decided that we'll, there will be fictional recreations taking place in the film. I mean, The Imposter, <clears throat> I think of all the films we've made, of all the films we've made, no film has ever... I mean, The Imposter was the brainchild of Bart Layton and Dimitri Duganis. They had that all mapped out in their heads. In fact, when we met them to talk about collaborating with them my recollection is they'd already shot the interview with frederick so so all it was both simon chin and i and both our companies sort of shepherded them from that point on and really we were just there to advise and help bart with his own vision which was very very clear as to how he wanted to go about it so so you know it wasn't our brainchild he definitely had it mapped out very clearly and we we literally you know we got him an amazing editor and, and we sat there in the edit with him helping him do what he was doing but Bart is an extraordinary talent and uh and was very sure about how he wanted to go about it and you know and had written a very complex script and really had it all mapped out you've mentioned um Stephen look at the uh, first I believe it's the first collaboration that you did with him Fire in Babylon but also a film a more recent film like Winter on Fire could you talk a little bit about the, the sort of your approach to the subject matter and subject matter and how you develop the ideas with the directors Fire in Babylon um, Fire in Babylon a couple of friends of mine came to me and asked me if I would be interested in telling that story and, and I'm a sports lunatic and I'm a big cricket fan so I was just immediately very interested in doing that and uh, Stephen Stephen knew nothing about cricket at all but Stephen is a director who and this is one of the reasons why he's such a pleasure to work with in some respects a subject that he knows nothing about is the perfect vehicle for Stephen because he will make sure that by the time he starts making his film he knows everything about that subject so so you know I am um, so so he went and met all the players and you know spoke to them at great length I think the sort of the pivotal moment of putting that film together came when we decided that we only were going to have the West Indians in the film which which I think I mean it's not a particularly bold move but I felt like was an entirely appropriate and Certainly from my perspective for that story, I thought it was the perfect move to make for that kind of story. Go on, Nicole. 
I was going to say, a really um, beautiful touch that Stephen brought to the film was that because he went and spent so much time in the West Indies, he came up with the idea of those little kind of vignettes um, where the cutaways, where you'd have a little calypso band telling you kind of a little mini narrative. So little punctuation points throughout the film, which really lightened the film and also gave you an incredible sense of place because he knew it then. He'd spent so much time in the West Indies and it was his immersive sense as a filmmaker that um, he bought to play there. But it also, um, again, pushed the form in a... You know, it's a very classic in many senses. You've, it's talking hairs and archive, but those, that little flourish really pushed it to another level for me. I think from a production point of view on that film, though, one of the challenges was that is he did all his filming in one block. So from the production side, usually you would hold back your drama or your vignettes until later on in the edit, and you kind of know what you're doing, and you go back and do it. But it was a more challenging budget, so he literally shot for eight, nine weeks, and he did the whole lot in one block. So he went with a very clear sense of what he wanted. You know, the scenes that he did with the kids on the beach, he, he is unique in that he really does have a very clear vision, even before he gets into the edit, of what he wants. So he just went and shot it all in one go, which is, you know, production-wise is a joy because he'd spent all the money. Um, but, it, you know, he, he does have that clarity of what he sees the film as really early on. He's also something of a talent scout because the kid who he has filming, who he films bowling on the beach, seven years later was the captain of the West Indies cricket team. <laughs> um, Andrew, I thought you were going to say something just then. No, I, I wanted. Did you ask about Winter on Fire as well, or did I? Yes, it? yes, yeah. you did. Okay, you're going to pick that up. Winter on Fire was a, 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 a situation where I was approached by a producer in Los Angeles who basically had met with the director of Winter on Fire, who had just shown him, her, a vast amount of rushes, effectively, which were, or an assembly of his rushes from Maidan. Um, And, you know, what we did on that film was bring in all sorts of creative people, because Evgeny, the director, had no experience of making a documentary of that nature. Uh, Neither did my friend, who's a producer who had approached me. She's a a a narrative movie producer. And uh, it was based in Los Angeles, that film. And I, I, I think I, what I knew is that we needed as many super talented people as possible to help Evgeny find a vision and then realize that vision. So we worked with this incredible company in Los Angeles called Rock, Paper, Scissors, which is run by Angus Wall, who is the editor who won back-to-back Academy Awards for the Fincher movies, um, Benjamin Button and Social, no, Social, Social Network, I think. Uh, he, he's a fantastic editor and under his guidance he he brought in a sort of junior editor of his who we're now working with on a project straight after that and then they have this extraordinary graphics company called Elastic who do the title sequences for Game of Thrones and True Detective and what's the the night manager or what it was called all incredibly talented and they did these this fabulous graphics intro for the film and so I basically just surrounded Evgeny with as many of those sorts of people as possible to help him really create a film out of a vast number of rushes, basically. Because the, when we watched the first kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, a pull-down, it was so early, but it was raw and visceral, you know, pure citizen journalism, um, but it needed a shape. 
and all those people helped him find the through line and also explain what was happening even though you were watching the footage thinking god this is kind of intense and upsetting and desperate it was hard to kind of keep tabs so actually rock paper scissors helped with that story line helped you kind of keep tabs of where you were in the story what was happening during that revolution. and also i mean it's one of the it's one of the the great things about what we do that we're so lucky to do is, is, is for all the sort of sprawlingness of it, you watch that pull down and I could just tell there's something in here that is utterly inspiring, incredibly powerful and deeply, deeply moving. And so I know that somehow we're going to be able to help create this and turn this into something really devastating. And I do think it ended up being a really beautiful, powerful film. And, um, Funnily enough, we had one of those moments, I thought, yeah, in the office this afternoon when we were watching exactly. these musical vignettes from a film that Eugene Jarecki's making that he was talking to us about. And I apologize for saying this because it makes me sound really smug. I don't mean to, but I sat there watching these vignettes almost in tears and just thinking, we're so lucky that this is our work because watching these beautiful performances in the back of a Rolls-Royce, which is the Rolls-Royce that Elvis bought whenever the hell it was... Um, was just so moving and and just to think that we're now going to hopefully be part of helping him trying to figure out and cre- create that turn that into a film is just and that, that that's our work is i feel is it, we're incredibly privileged and lucky and and yet at the same time it's also so exciting to be touched and moved just by you know just by these little moments when when you, you i felt real emotion and real power and thought this we can we can use we can turn this into something that hopefully is going to be really impactful i mean that might be a good moment to talk about the sugar man you know how sugar man came about because you know that's a very good example of something coming in out of the blue i mean do you want to talk about the day that how that happened well apart from the fact that john was weeping at his desk as he watched the footage as was i at my desk i mean again it was just one of those moments you just knew that you wanted to be part of it um, Simon too, all of us were watching it in different rooms um, and we just knew and then when we met Malik he was just such an extraordinary uh, an amazing sort of energetic delightful man that you just knew you wanted to work on this film um, and you knew there was something really really special there um, It was definitely more fully formed than anything that had yeah, ever come to us sure. previously I have to say when, when Malik delivered that cut to us it was a film I mean yes it needed finishing funds and it needed work done to it but it was enough of a film to have a beginning middle and end and nicole's not kidding i was just i mean i don't know if i was sobbing but i was definitely crying at the end um yeah and that was yeah that was a it was a it was a great moment and it was an amazing experience Andrew. no i was just going to say what's coming out of this i, I was sort of getting some clarity in a way and just to explain um maybe to the audience it's we can go, if you take one day in September, that is one example of how we work and what we do. He had the idea. It came from him. He was driving around, trying, you know, having been very inspired, inspired by When We Were Kings. And we took that literally an idea from its very nascent in, uh, in, in John's head, put Kevin MacDonald on it. He was pretty inexperienced at that time. You know, certainly never done a cinema uh, piece before. And that we were very, very full on beginning to end. What happens after that, because we'd never done a feature doc before in our lives, is suddenly you're the expert in town, you know, and that attracts. So suddenly you start getting stuff coming through and you get into this very, very privileged place that we're in now 
which is we see an awful lot of things. So we can range from coming up with our own ideas, of which we have plenty, or just having this beautiful thing where we can pick at any different stage. So Bart Layton comes with something. We know that we, you know, Bart's an amazing filmmaker. We know we're not going to have to do too much on the editorial creative side there. He'll get on with it. But we can facilitate as we as is required. So, and that is such a great position to be in. And also, our jobs these days and in, in, in recent years has become, although it's essentially about helping people make their films, it's also now about helping people manage and oversee what happens once their film is done because there's a obviously that's when it has its real life and we have become i guess experts in in that part of the process which is trying to get it a you know a high profile festival platform trying to help secure distribution deals overseeing the distribution deals overseeing the releases of those films and and i have to say not least because my original background was in that area working for companies like palace pictures a long time ago in publicity and marketing it's part of the process that i love as yeah as much as making the films um and it's something that is now a very much part of what we do as in in the whole process and before we see one of the uh, teaser clips just looking what andrew said at the idea that unlike narrative filmmaking where there seems to be a pretty much set process of the way things get developed um you have films coming different forms could we talk a little bit about head of production and head of development and how that fits within the sort of, not so much the chain of command, but the flow? We sit in a small room together and um, we're like, we have, we have formed, no, no, we, 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 we work very well together um, now. We, we have... <laughs> No, okay, we, we're going to move on to the clip now. No, we, we're no, talking we about truth and well, honesty. No, we work very well together because we do very different jobs, but we overlap an enormous amount. And, you know, we have to ask each other questions all the time, usually me more than her, of, of her than me. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great symbiotic relationship. We have, we have to function day in, day out. You know, it's a lot of time together. And, and also sometimes we're kind of functioning on different sides of John's brain it's a you know it's intense but really rewarding they also are both producers in their own rights now and have made films produce films together and separately i might add yeah i mean i think that actually there's it does it, it is it's not quite like being married but it's because there's there is a fairly obvious division and i try not to kind of steer into too far into the editorial world because there are a lot of editorial voices <laughs> Um, so it's easier to say, you know, money, money, logistics, legals, problems, problems on my side, solutions on Nicole's probably. Um, but because the productions come in at different stages, some of them from the production side come in from right on day one. John raises the money with Nicole and then it's budgets right from the beginning. Or if they come in at the end, then it's, it's, uh, it's a hot, on the production side, it's a, you know, it's post and it's a different ball game. But I think we work okay. I always think George I ha- her yet. George has to say no in a really hard way a lot of the time. She's got to police budgets, which she's brilliant at. Um, and I have to say no in a nice way a lot of the time um, because I'm dealing with directors and editors and, you know, I'm dealing with And I don't more. take no for an answer. 
So, yeah, that's the difference between us. And with your own roles as producer, have these been projects that have been brought in that you've just become so involved in, or are they things that you guys might have initiated yourselves? Um, one, one film came in that we just, you know, it, it was a natural fit for Nicole and I to produce together, which was uh, The Sunshine Makers, which is out in the States later on this year. Um, because the director was very young, he needed a lot more hand-holding than um, some of the other directors that we've worked with, so he needed more time, and time is the thing that actually amongst the team is difficult sometimes, so it became a natural division of us on something like that. On the on I Am Ali, the producer-director, Claire Lewins, who brought the project in, just needed somebody to work alongside her so it was a different role for me as a producer on that than it would be on something like the sunshine makers which we were much more hands-on before we see the teasers can i just add one thing to that because we, we talked about the story and the fact that stories come to us i think the other thing that we're trying i think we're good at it we're trying to get even better at is is people you know is identifying the talent because that's the other way to go is not the story but the person who might tell the story who is a good who's got a good eye for stories and that's something that uh, we're really keen to encourage and younger and younger you know um, we're, we're less worried by what experience somebody has got than what their eye is like what their their sensibility is like you know for 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 telling uh, a, a doc story in particular so we do try and nurture talent as well just you know. picking up on that actually on brando and on the uh, drugs film we had a young work experience girl who came in she was the goddaughter of a dop i'd worked with he said would you have her in for two weeks she came in she stayed for just under two years she became an absolutely integral part of our team i mean from my side particularly the team that comes on board the productions is absolutely key and we tend to bring on people from work experience uh who she stayed on she's she was a brilliant she became a brilliant archive researcher and we tr- we really do try to bring on those people so that we can keep them um, and, you know, take them across more and more productions. But our, my team and, that, and our team, we and have a lot a of them are here today, here, yeah. are all people that we try to actually develop and promote within so that you can keep the talent within the company, which helps because then they know how we work, but also that they are across all our films and feel a part of what we're all trying to do and if people feel engaged in the process then they do a better job they have more fun and you get a better film in the end of it. go on team quickly stand up go on you, we team love passion. Go on. Woo, embarrass woo, woo. you Love you get there we go all of you all our team they basically are our infrastructure and absolutely invaluable because it's not just us. We do employ men as well. <laughs> yeah. <But> in different <laughs> roles. Yeah. Um, just staying with the idea of the team that you have, you mentioned Stephen Riley. You've worked on three films with him. You've also got Amir Barlev, who you've worked also, I believe, on three films. Um, and it, it was interesting you saying that you'd, you'd approach Stephen um, with a project, which I, I think a lot of people outside of film would think, no, it's the director is everything. It's their idea. They conceive of everything, which is a nonsense. Um, do you tend to find that you, over the years, you've, you've worked with so many talented directors that you might now have projects that you would develop and think, let's get this person in, or is, is that still something that's quite rare? 
that you would get a director involved in a project because um, you love the idea, you've got the idea, but you don't have the director? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the time projects come to us and then we reach out to right. either directors we worked with before or, you know, directors whose work we've seen and we really admire and think, wow, we'd really love to work with that guy and try and create a relationship through a through a uh, a project. In the case of Stephen, I'd seen his film, his first film, Blue Blood, and uh, I thought it was great and I just wanted to meet him. I met his producer. I, I thought they were both great. I wanted to work with them both. And uh, and so when Fire and Babylon, when the idea for Fire and Babylon came along, I, I it was which was I think at least a year after I'd met Stephen, I approached him with it. And likewise, his producer Rafi Marmor, who I stayed in contact with for many many years, we're now whatever it is, like ten years later, we're now making stuff together. Um, that's one of the things that I love about also about what we do is seeing someone else's work and thinking. And admiring it and thinking, right, I want to find a way of finding something that we can do with that director. At the same time, we, we've also been able to build relationships with directors who we've made, you know, we've made, I guess, great films with. We've loved the experience of doing so and therefore we've made multiple, multiple films with them. So Amir, as you say, Stephen, Greg Barker, we're now making our seventh or eighth film with Dan Gordon. We must be making our 12th film with, and, and I, I should just say, as a result of the Hillsborough verdicts today, the film we made on Hillsborough, which is really extraordinary, which hasn't been able to broadcast over the last two years because of the inquests, will be broadcasting on the 8th of May at 8pm on BBC Two. Um, and uh, is a really, I mean, all credit to him, it is it is the definitive film on Hillsborough. It's, it's a really extraordinary piece of work, and particularly given the verdicts today, I think it's going to the reception for it could be quite extraordinary. So, and there's actually, I love the fact that, you know, I mean, Amir and I call each other soul brothers, you know, Greg is one of my very, very closest friends. Likewise, Dan, through our work, we've built relationships with people who've become really integral parts of our lives. And that's a great pleasure as well, a really, a really great pleasure. Uh, And, you know, so, so it's, it's good all around, really. I was just going to say, it sounds really naff, but, you know, there are directors that walk into our office and it they're like extended family. I mean, we're like a bit of a family and they are like extended family. You know, and Dan walks in, it's like he just sits down, make, you know, he he's part of the team. You do realise when you leave here, you're going to have a whole queue of people with CVs going, I'm a director. What ideas have right. we got? I want to open uh, to the audience, but just one more question. And sounds a bit odd coming after that, but you're, you watch perhaps a clip or a chance to see the whole film at a certain state in an office you know you want to work with this film but you also have commercial considerations um how tough is it to actually balance the two i'd say it's dead easy am i wrong (laughs) i mean listen you know we we and maybe to a fault i suspect george would say it is to a fault you know we we want to work with we want to tell great stories and we want to work with interesting and talented filmmakers. And yeah, we want to make a living and we want to make a decent living. And if we can, we want to make a good living, which would be great. But we are not the kind of people who it's not about the deal. It's, you know, the deal will be fine. The deal will be something that means that our company's name is up there and a couple of our names will be up there and we'll make enough money to be able to go make, to go make the next film. And if it does great back end, then we'll make some money there. And we're in the fortunate position now because of all the work, the work of all of us, that we're doing three to six films at any one time, 
and and we make enough money to stay in business and and a little more i guess and and so so i find i find i think we for the most part find that that fairly easy and even sometimes and this is def- this is the, the tricky bit in some respects is when a small film comes in yeah, we, and we all go oh my god we this know is we great should say no, but we can't. we've got this to help so them make this film we really and you know four years later we're like we're not like why the hell did we do this but it's it is four years later we've made nothing <laughs> the film has been made and more often than not it's a good film so but but those are those are very time consuming and Sometimes we get to the end of the road on those and think, well, why did we really do it? But the truth is, when something comes in that is irresistible because it touches you, you just got to do it. And uh, so, you know, if that answers the question, that's the best answer I got. I mean, last year, actually, to give John a bit, of, bit more credit, we actually produced or oversaw 17 productions out of the US and the UK. And there was, the, you know, there were some very big ones that, you know, are wonderful financially and then there are others that you just you know that he's pains to come and tell me that we won't make any money on at all but that you just feel you know that you have to help somebody tell their story and so actually we're very privileged to be able to balance the two Mm -hmm. because you you know it's Andrew and John's business and you have to it has to be seen as a business and the industry should be seen as a business it's not a hobby and people should be out there trying to earn a living and 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 we should be encouraging people to be doing that at the same time as making films that don't get properly funded but need to, the story needs to be told so we we are lucky to work across the range in that way and the bigger films give us the luxury to help some of the smaller ones get onto the screen i mean searching for sugarman was one of those films that you know, initially did not have the money. And we were absolutely privileged to work with Malik and help him take that to where it went to. And then you, you know, in that situation, you do reap some rewards for investing your time and energy earlier on in the production when there isn't any financial money on the table. Let's take some audience questions. We've got two down the front um, just wanted to pay tribute to Searching for Sugarman it's actually a film that actually made me go out and buy the soundtrack because I first I had the same reaction to it um, actually using not for her as a point of reference because a lot of that imagery is obviously very you could say provocative and stuff is there any particular subjects if, if a filmmaker came to you is there any subjects that would be seen as taboo do you have a sensitivity to those things and is there something you would turn down you know because of the prospect that it could cause a lot more anything to do with arsenal (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think we're pretty open to everything you know sometimes one of the things about making these films is you know you enter the lives of these people more often than not for the best part of two years and you become incredibly close to them incredibly close to the stories they take a pound of your flesh and therefore if you're going to do them it's got to be something that you're prepared to do that to com- make that commitment to so so you know if someone came to us as they probably have done with there's this amazing film about a serial killer who murdered a zillion people and was a repulsive human being but isn't it dramatic let's make a film about it you know you got to draw breath and think are, are we going to commit our lives to two years of telling that story so so it's not like we wouldn't engage with it but but there is definitely a sort of threshold from that point of view and then 
I mean, taboo subjects. You know, I, 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 apart from like the obvious, I don't like, you know, sort of some, I mean, I, I suppose it's those kind of stories where you have to get that involved in them. And if they're really, really ugly and unpleasant, it's going to take a decision to, to decide you do want to do that. But as a rule, I guess we're open to everything except Arsenal. Actually, sort of dealing with the idea of parameters, you've got The Making of a Murderer, which is 10 hours on Netflix. You mentioned Andrew Juraki earlier. You've got a six-hour film with the jinx. Again, it's this idea of thinking outside the box. Do you feel that there are no parameters now beyond just the subject matter, but the actual form itself? Let me, do you answer, but let me just say it was Eugene Jurecki, not Andrew, who's his brother, brother, just because he gets upset when people get confused, as I did. <laughs> I think um, it's really exciting uh, what's happening on multi-platforms of documentary at the moment. I mean, Making Murderer, The Jinx, Serial, you know, they're all... Uh, these docu-series are exciting, and they're great for documentary because they open it up, they bring new audiences, younger audiences, um, but they also create more of a challenge for us with features because they're available, you know, on your sofa at home. And it's always hard, it's still hard to get people in a cinema to watch a feature documentary. So I think there are good things and they, there are kind of, you know, challenges that have been created. But as a consumer, as a viewer, I love it. I love all that stuff. And I'm excited that it's pushing the form. I mean, I think it's created a lot of discussion about um, documentary versus drama and the fact is although I love all those three series I think one of them has been attacked a lot for manipulating the truth too much because actually true life doesn't kind of fit into the cadence of, of drama which so one are you thinking of? Jinx has been right. you know documentary purists have really attacked it because he manipulated the timeline, you know, the recons are kind of seductive and glorious, and but they're, you know, I, there's lots and lots of uh, kind of discussion around that film, and whereas Making Murder is much more pure documentary, it's kind of, it's raw footage, I mean, the only thing that's a kind of metaphor, the only uh, element that's kind of newly shot is the drone footage over the um, junkyard. Um and, and, you know, there are, there are pros and cons for all those uh, series, but I, I'm thrilled that they're around. I mean, it's good for us. It's good for the genre. It's, it pushes all of us. It does. I, I mean, I think it's... A, I mean, we don't have time to go into it here, but it's just something interesting to reflect on is the length the story should be because before, you know, we were cons- constrained. You know, if it's in the movie, cinema, you know, commercial... Yeah, needs dictate it's going to be about anywhere from 90 to 100 120 minutes you know and then there's a oh is it a tv half hour is it a tv hour that is all breaking down now and it's actually very exciting you know it's like okay let's try it in different formats let's try it in different lengths you know what is it that makes a story satisfying what is the natural process what's happened to the five-act structure the three-act structure when you put it into different forms and different lengths. You know, it's a very interesting one um, to debate that we're, we're all of us debating now, you know, kind of organically, really. Um, <clears throat> I, I really like what you said about um, truth and and your ethics. And actually, along the line of talking about taboos, what are your thoughts on the documentaries like Facts being very controversial and it's it's slightly different to your type of um, documentaries? 
can you explain that a bit more when you um, say facts like what like no the uh, documentary facts where's all the oh um, facts okay sorry sorry I thought you said facts I'll be pun who wants to take that I I haven't seen it either facts I don't know what it is the one that was Ah, turned down from Tribeca Tribeca. yeah 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 and so we haven't seen it because, but but you're just talking about the the idea of it. Yeah, because yeah. it's a very controversial yeah. um, topic. Of course, I Th- <laughs> there's a few documentaries coming out um, all about how um, uh, the cover up of it. Is that right? No, there isn't. Funnily enough, my wife was one of the was a journalist uh, at the time of all of that and was on the side of Andrew, whatever he was called, the 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 the. The doctor uh, you know i don't know what my opinion i mean on the whole i tend to lean towards thinking give it an airing and test it you know give it let it out you know because there you know there are lots of things that are hidden from us you know there is a lot of that as we all know you know um so but i guess i lean on the side of air it put it out there and let it get shot down and open to scrutiny you know if you pass the microphone across there and um, also just while we're staying with Tribeca could you talk about your feelings about festivals and also festivals as a platform along with awards for actually pushing films I mean the truth is festivals are essential for as a platform and for launching films so so you know we are big fans and 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 in the documentary world of course Sundance is sort of the mecca for all documentaries um, but that that sort of route of of going of of launching a film through one of the bigger festival platforms yeah has been essential i suspect it's maybe become a little less essential but it's still you know it's the prefer it's the preferred route and uh i guess i if i don't say it one of us will say it we're lucky enough to have be had films in sundance now for 11 consecutive years which for a little mm. production company is pretty good going and uh um you know and it's we hope to keep the streak going. And yes, Tribeca and Toronto and Venice. We went to Venice with um, Winter on Fire. Was like, I was in tears. I got to say, it was this incredible room, massive screening. He cinema. cries a lot. Obviously. Yeah, I do cry a lot too. <laughs> um, and at the end of the film, the audience is sort of down there. You're like the emperor in this sort of sitting up here. They all turn around and applaud. And actually, that's not why I was in tears. I hadn't seen the film for quite a long time and I was just devastated by it but the combination of being in Venice being in this room watching the film and having everyone applaud was more than I I could handle seeing a film with an audience there's nothing like it seeing a film with a live audience you're in the audience watching a film you've worked on there is nothing like it because it takes on a whole new life there's a kind of dynamic there that you've never had before Um, you've always seen it with people who've worked on it Mm. but it's definitely festivals is, is, is a key part of the whole process the awards thing is another thing, and then with the risk of being controversial, and you'll all have your own opinions about this. We get quite work. We've been on the right side of some of these big awards, uh, um, and we're lucky enough, you know, a couple of times. But there are times when you look at, like last, I mean, I, more last year than this year. I mean, there, the, we have the debate. We always sit here going, okay, well, was that the right result? I get very frustrated. I don't know if you saw all the docs from the year before, but, you know, I watched Salt of the Earth, and I'm like, bloody hell that is an amazing 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 film that i don't think got the credit it needed and, and, and the you, awards credit the, the, for the academy awards you know for any if you haven't seen salt of the earth it's i think it's one of the great docs you know and and then you see citizen four getting all the awards and 
that opens up a debate about you know what you're rewarding what kind of you know the it's a whole that we could spend more time talking about what what makes a, a, you know the great dark and what is worthy of it sounds award. like a really good bar conversation yeah i think so let's save it for that yeah hi um when it comes to making a foreign uh, documentary where is two different languages three different languages being spoken how do you guys deal with that? Because I'm, I'm working on a, on a project that's half Somali, half English, and then there are not an abundance of Somalian editors out there. So um, how, how would you advise someone to kind of tackle an issue of language? And Brilliant, subtle pitch, by the way. Mm. Well, it's funny, it's quite timely, because I've just finished working on a film that... We've just finished working on a film that's um, in Hungarian and English, and we're also in the middle of working on a film that's... French, uh, Israeli, French, Hungarian, Hungarian Hebrew. Hebrew. We'll have some German in it. Um, it's actually, to be honest, the key thing is preparation before you go into your edit. Everything is translated, transcribed, subtitled before you start the edit because it's if you don't get it right before, it just becomes a mess. And your editor, then your editor has all the subtitles already on. It's timely and time. It's time-consuming, but it's like everything in production. If you've prepped it and you know what you're doing earlier enough, then actually it's it should be a relatively straightforward process. Is it something you ever have in the early days, second thoughts, or just a slight thought on in terms of budget? Because you might have footage that if it's all in the English language, you're just going to excise things because you know it doesn't work. But this, you, you're going to have to get everything translated, subtitled. Yes, I. If, you know, it, you never. Some films you know a lot at the beginning when you're budgeting okay. a lot. This one I didn't, and so you have to hide little pots of money for emergencies, <laughs> like translations, because they're much more expensive than anybody ever thinks. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's always a question of hiding pots of money, mainly from your producer, uh, so that you can fall back on. Little reserves. Yes. Hello. Um, I had a question about the people that you find to contribute and interview in your films. Um, have you ever come across a, a situation where you were making something and it was integral that you had this person and there was roadblocks in the way and how did you sort of overcome that to make the film that you wanted to make? Have you ever been in that sort of situation? John's very charming. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, 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 of if we've had some I mean the only the film that springs to mind first and foremost where we had that situation was a film we made called Once in a Lifetime which was about a soccer team from New York in the 70s called the New York Cosmos for whom a footballer called Pele who's like the most famous footballer that ever lived um, was an integral part of the team and led us a merry, merry, merry dance for the best part of two years, trying to get him into the film. And in some respects, to make the film without him in it was sort of inconceivable because he played such a central part in the film. I suppose he, ultimately he led us a merry dance forever and we didn't get him in the film. But we were able to represent him in so many different ways because there's so much footage of him. Um, that we were able to tell the story using, I suppose, using that and having people talk about him. I mean, it's kind of basic, but that's that's what we did in that situation. It, 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 
I guess at the onset, when we started on the road to make the film, if someone had said, you're not going to get Pele, we wouldn't have made that film. Um, because, yeah, we wouldn't have made the film. Um, I'm trying to think of others. I think, I think with the Bond film, we knew early oh, on that Sean we weren't going to yeah. get Sean. And yet Stephen was clever enough to, cr- you know, to craft the film around all the other Bonds that we did get, um, whilst keeping trying to get him endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And... You know, I don't. I I think you just, as John says, usually these people appear in enough archive, and their absence from the film can sometimes tell its own story that the yeah, audience which, takes which away. Pele's definitely did in the case of that film, and, and I would say we tried everything, and we tried really hard to get Sean Connery. So, so I will, we we only give up when we really, literally. I mean, in fact, in the case we, of one day, in, I'm sorry, once in a lifetime, my. Uh, my co-producer from America, Fisher Stevens, went to Brazil to try and get him and sort of hunted him down. I mean, we literally tried everything. Um, so, but but yeah, if you're, if, I suppose if if the crafts, the people crafting the film are talented enough, there can be a way around in those sort of situations. There's there's a wonderful parallel to Pele in Fire in Babylon where the attempt to get a hold of Viv Richards actually becomes part of the film itself. It's part of a narrative of the documentary. Well, I would say in the case of the Tillman story, none of that family... I mean, in, in some respects, this, is, this was, again, sort of the ultimate experience. That family didn't want to make that film. And we went on this process, myself and the director, of sort of, I guess, befriending them and talking them through the process, making them part of the process that got them to a point where they were prepared, where, where we actually sort of, we, 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 they went full circle and, and they did want to be in the film. Although, as Andrew points out, Pat's brother was in the same unit as him on the day that he was killed, one of Pat's brothers, and he never wanted to be in the film. In fact, at, uh, initially, neither of his two brothers wanted to be in the film. So we made, the, we, didn't, we didn't, they weren't essential, essential. We made the film to the point of a fine cut, then we showed it to the family, at which point one of his brothers said, I have to be in this film. But the brother who had been in the unit with him still said he he couldn't face being in the film. So, you know, there's more often than not, we'll figure out a way around either by persuading the person one way or another or constructing something that makes the absence part of the story. We've got, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. So someone had their hand up there and then we'll go to the back. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, uh, first of all, that um, the first film that uh, introduced me to, to the Passion family was actually from the Passion Wild, which was My Life as a Turkey. I just yeah. want to say that's a fantastic film, maybe uh, lesser known. but So glad well you mentioned that, yeah. It's, Absolutely it's a beautiful film, film, yeah. Um, my question is, uh, is if uh, VR is on your radar at all, because you talk about different formats of documentary, and you know it seems to be coming fast and hard right now. I see every day. I see more and more stuff about it. And actually, I didn't really rate it at all until at Berlin. I saw um, a very short documentary in VR, and actually thought, "Wow, that that was actually a really interesting." Which one was that? It. Which it was a film about. Um, a UN uh, refugee camp yeah. in Jordan, and I think it was it was part Doing of like rounds, a, yeah, a yeah. sampler. Yeah, and how short is very short? I think that was like three to five minutes long. So I just wondered if it was, you know, if, if that's coming for documentary, if that's something you guys have researched or looked at at all. Go on. I was just going to say, Tribeca Film Festival, which we just come back from, had a massive um, VR presence this year, and I was quite. Bl- I popped in, and I was blown away by some of the New York Times. Um, new VR films it's just incredible documentaries just that 
literally place i know we know this about vr but um really really good when they're done well and you get get it right they're fantastic. Ma- massive debate about whether it's a storytelling tool you know and i'm i'm probably on the camp that says it isn't you know as am uh, I. Uh, right now and i think it's an experiential thing that has its uses so it's like a something that might work alongside you know um I, I definitely, I, I can't yet see how it can work over an extended period of time. I feel not least the the physical experience of being in that of the whole VR thing. I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one, but it certainly makes me feel pretty queasy pretty quickly. Well, it's it's a longer debate, but just briefly, if you're telling a story in, from the school I come from, and it maybe you know, it is about you know, you are deciding whenever you relate something that's happened and experience a story, you choose what you put in and what you leave out, and how long you choose to linger on a particular fact or not. You can't do that in VR. You know, you don't do that in VR or not, you know. So, it, to me, it ain't a story yet. You know, it ain't a storytelling tool. Someone right at the very yeah. back. Yes, good evening. Um, listen to me, Marlin, I thought was a wonderful, um, innovative film, which I found very moving. Um, I wondered if you could talk about your inspiration. I mean, not just because Marlon Brando was a pioneer of acting, but what was it that sort of inspired you to come up with the idea to, you know, create this um, this this way of doing it? It was a combination of things, some of which we touched on already. It was it was. As I said earlier, being told that there were like literally 300 hours of these audio recordings that he'd made across his whole life. You know, when you make documentaries, those are the magic words. If anyone ever says, oh, there's all this footage that no one's ever seen or there's all this audio that no one's ever heard, that is immediately pointing you in a particular direction. Um, it was the fact that we, were, we, we didn't want to do the conventional thing. We didn't want to interview lots of Hollywood actors to talk about him. I think also when Stephen discovered that back in the day he'd had his head scanned uh, in a computer, the prospect of being able to take those original scans, give them to our animation company, the animation side of our company, have them update the scans so that we could then recreate from his original scans the animated version of his head and have that almost as a sort of ghostly presence through the, all these things, all these things were the sort of the factors that made us feel like, like this was, this was the right way to try and make this film. It's, I, 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 there was very definitely a moment where even at that screening where we looked at the, basically the black screen with, with Marlon's words, subtitled because the audio wasn't good enough with a little bit of archive for all that it didn't work entirely i i definitely remember having a very strong feeling that this is this is the way to do this film um it was a big risk because if it hadn't worked we'd have been in trouble um but i i very definitely felt like we were going about it the right way so so you know that and added into that is Stephen's amazing talent and and his sort of work ethic and the fact that we had this brilliant writer Peter Takey who'd also worked with us on Fire and Babylon and with Stephen plowing through all that all that audio and I guess the other pivotal moment was when Stephen having listened to enough of it said to me there's enough here to make a film but also it's it's not just about Marlon Brando and I think that was the other thing that we came to the conclusion that you know, we always have to look at the marketplace and see what else is out there, what else has been made. And it was, what can we do that's new? And actually, Marlon was so articulate in what he was saying. 
um, on the audio tapes and the way Stephen pieced it together is it's a film that's not just about Marlon Brando and it is more than a summer. No, and that is the essential element of everything we ever do, as we were saying earlier. You know, for these films to really work, they have to resonate with audiences in all sorts of different ways and they have to be greater than the sum of their parts. You know, if it was just a biography as Marlon as an actor, it could only be so interesting. To me, it becomes a meditation on life, not just his life. And that's, I think, what has resulted in it touching so many people because he speaks to us um, about so many of the things, the struggles that we all have in our lives. And that's the magic ingredient as well. So, And because so. it's just audio, it's like he's on your shoulder yeah. talking to you. It's an incredibly intimate experience. We sound like we're pushing on. So again, th- th- but this takes us back to something we spoke at the beginning. The fact that Listen to Me, Marlon isn't, convention- isn't a conventional documentary. It doesn't fit within a certain box in the way that so many documentaries, both Passion Pictures and other companies make. Um, do you feel that the landscape of non-fiction film, let's call it, is it's easier to sort of be more adventurous today and, and the process of things like pitching and looking for funding, is, is that much easier now or is it as hard or harder? Um, well, nice the, easy question to sort of end The on. landscape for, for pitching, for raising money on these films is better than it's ever been. There are more players in the marketplace and in the business of making feature docs than there have ever been. Amazon, Netflix, all the big broadcasters in the US um, and plenty of others. Um, you know, our Brando was Showtime and NBC Universal. We're making films with HBO, A&E, as I said earlier, Netflix. Um, so the marketplace is, is, is great. You know, if you look at any of the stuff, that, well, much of the stuff that people like Netflix are doing, they're getting bolder and bolder in what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. Likewise, HBO, who did the jinx. Um, so I feel like it's a very good time and we're very lucky because we now know all these people incredibly well. So we're able to, we're able to reach out to them in, in as short a route as anyone could possibly. I think it's, um, I think documentary actually has become the cultural form of our time. I think it's becoming that way and it's incredibly exciting. Um, if you haven't seen Listen to Me, Marlon, I think it is now on DVD. And it's out on all sorts of things, DVD, digital, etc., etc. I would also say, I mean, it's not the perfect film, but I saw like one person put their hand up from having seen Winter on Fire. If you have Netflix, yeah. check it out because it isn't a 10 out of 10 film, but I, I'd be surprised if you get to the end of the film and you think, why did I waste my time watching that? It's pretty extraordinary. So if you do have Netflix, check it out. It is a very good film. Also, could... What date? Is it the 8th of May that the Hillsborough... 8th of May, Hillsborough, BBC Two. I would love it if as many people as possible watch that. And I'm a massive Chelsea fan. And quite frankly, you know, there's a sort of movement within football fans, oh, stop wanging on about Hillsborough. It's over. This is an, incre- it's an extraordinary story. It's a shocking, awful, shameful story. It ended today as far as the families are concerned, in the very best possible way. And our film is a film that has people talking in it who have never spoken before, police who were there on the day. It's, it's again, da- credit to Dan Gordon, who, who's a great friend and a, a super talented filmmaker. If anyone has any appetite for it, I strongly advise you watch it. Um, do look on the Picture House website in coming weeks to find out about the next BAFTA Masterclass taking place here. Thank you to both Picture House and to BAFTA for organising this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Nicole, George, Andrew and John. Passion Pictures. <laughs>